Hey everyone, this is Derek Weston from the Food and Faith Podcast. Welcome back to our second of three pilot episodes looking at the lectionary through the lens of climate change. On this episode, we'll be looking at passages for Monday Thursday. My guests are Reverend Dr. Garrett Andrew, pastor of Nipomo Community Presbyterian Church in Arroyo Grande, California, Wilson Dickinson, author of The Green Good News and Director of Continuing Education at Lexington Theological Seminary, Avery Lamb, co-executive director at Creation Justice Ministries, and Reverend Dr. Leah Shade, author of Creation Crisis Preaching, Ecology, Theology in the Pulpit, and Professor for Preaching and Worship at Lexington Theological Seminary. The passages we'll be looking at are Exodus 12, 1 to 14, Psalm 116, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, and John 13, 1 to 7, 31 to 35. Exodus 12, verses 1 to 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in portion to the number of people who eat it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on two, on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. So, Leah, let's start off with this question. Where is creation in the story? And creation actually seems to be all over this story. It is, absolutely. And for Christians, of course, we tend to focus on um, the story about the slaughtering of the lamb and the spreading of the blood on the doorpost because of its connection to our imagery of Jesus as the lamb of God. But I actually want to back up and come from a different angle on this and look at simply the the concept of the way time and seasons are delineated in this text. And I do this because I'm, I'm drawing from a, a resource called EcoBible, and it is a, a Jewish commentary on the, the first five books of the Torah. And one of the things that they point out in, in their commentary is that simply the command to mark the Hebrew month of, of I believe it's pronounced Nisan, that's the first commandment given to the Israelites, which I had mm. not realized before. Hmm. So they are, and, and, and notice when it's, it's, it's happening in springtime. And, and in fact, 
the, the Torah calls Passover the spring holiday. And in fact, what's, what's really fascinating is that they don't just use a, a calendar that is um, based on the, the sun, but also the moon. Mm-hmm. And so they are so attuned to the seasons, to the marking of time and its relationship to creation itself. Like this is happening in this season of rebirth, which of course has significance for us with Easter because Christians mark our time, mark our Easter in relation to the the Jewish holiday. But I, I, so I just want to take a moment to recognize the, the fact that this cyclical nature of the year and this observance is absolutely tied to the seasons, to the, the, the spring season and this idea of renewal. I'm really glad that you brought our attention there because for some reason, as I was reading the text, I don't know that I had paid as much attention to the sort of seasonality mm. of, of this passage that was obviously important enough for the writers of the text to say, exactly, this is happening this month. This is happening this day of this month. Mm-hmm. And so easy. It's so easy for us to gloss over those sorts of things. Mm. But, it, but when it's actually bringing us to a recognition of the seasonality and what the season represents and what that season holds for us as, as, um, particularly for those of us who are followers of Christ. Um, Wilson, any thoughts on, on where you're seeing creation in this passage? To, to, to Leah's point about time, I think this is, is really helpful to connect the holiday to the rhythms of creation and to then situate the holiday as something that is orienting with all the rhythms of life, right? Because at mm-hmm. least in, in my experience of holidays, living in the world I do where work is so profoundly emphasized holidays feel like this kind of exceptional time they're like a break there's something that's different there's there or or something you kind of collapse into and it's it provides the rest that allows you to go on with the rest of your life Mm. Um, and so instead seeing this holiday as embedded within the, the cycles of creation and the ways in which in an agrarian society that connects with everything in life it shows that you know the Passover is not kind of this exceptional thing that exists on its own outside of normal time and space. Instead, it is the orienting center. That's what holidays are. They're the orienting center that helps you understand and connect to uh, the rest of your life. I, and I want to pick up on that and, and, and underscore something else that I learned is that even the word month in Hebrew is significant because it's uh, it's chodesh, which literally means newness, newness. Mm. The fact that this Hebrew word for the basic time unit implies renewal as opposed to the continuation of the status quo is really important. And also the word for the uh, the word for year is shana, which is connected to the word change, shinua. Or Shinui. We've got this rhythm of of stability and change, stability and change, stability Mm. and change. And I think you're right, Wilson. This there is there's a radical break here 
of course, in the in the rhythm of oppression that the Israelites have been subjected to for hundreds of years. But that break is initiated within and uh, and by creation itself Hmm. like that. I think that's really cool. (laughs) You know, there's this there's this imposition of labor and and just extraction on the Hebrew people by the Egyptians that takes absolutely no account of the rhythms. Like you just work and work Mm. and work until you die. And and there's there's no sense of um, of the rhythms of time and and space and and um, and rest. And so the very fact that God initiates this this rupture in oppression and does so in such a radical way is something I think that most Christians miss and I think would be really good to highlight. Mm. Well, and I think that segue is really well into the second question of where is God interacting with creation? Um, because what what we see here is God in and through creation actually um, delivering this message of newness and delivering this message of change. So where where did you see God interacting with creation um, in this text? You know, the, the month begins with the appearance of the new moon according to Jewish tradition. So the moon's monthly cycle gives us the ability to mark holy days, holidays. Mm. And so I think there's a, there's an implicit connection to, um, to the Genesis story here where essentially God creates the marking of time through the, the apparent, you know, the sun, the moon and the stars. Mm-hmm. And so when when the Israelites are commanded to recognize this, it's allowing them to reconnect with what God has created in the first place mm-hmm. and to reorient their lives according to to the divine rhythms that have been set up for us, which I think is just beautiful. I love that, um, especially the idea of reorienting our lives to the divine rhythms in the face of an oppressive, extractive economy that, as you said before, doesn't care about those rhythms, just thinks about um, building, work, extraction, it, 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 it's not taking any of those other things, those those rhythms into account because it's got deadlines and quotas and things mm. like that. Um, so that's that's really that's really powerful. What Leah's saying about the the lunar calendar, right? And so that playing a role in this, I think, is is helpful for me in beginning to imagine what sometimes is meant by the heavens. Right. So oftentimes, you know, so even in the New Testament, it's oftentimes referred to as heaven in the singular. But, you know, the, the word is referring to the heavens and it's and it's in a poetic sense. But I, I wonder if you were a people who live by the lunar calendar and you had a sense of, you know, kind of this this divine order. Right. That that unfolded before you in the night sky. Um, if the sense of like God dwelling in the heavens wasn't God dwelling in a completely other domain, 
right? But it's it's that God dwells in that space um, where there is this kind of consistent order, right? Mm-hmm. So, and and while maybe on Earth uh, there there is all kinds of um, conflict and oppression and injustice, that order is always above you, mm-hmm. and that order is always turning and returning. And so, you know, where, where God dwells then is is not somewhere else entirely. But it, God dwells in the place that kind of consi- that constantly holds that created moral order that is loving and good. So can I, I, I want to share a quote from C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, which I read back in high school. And a passage from that stuck with me. And I, re- I went back and I looked at it because for those who are not familiar, C.S. Lewis is uh, a very famous Christian apologist. He wrote uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. And um, this book, The Screwtape Letters, is uh, an imagination, imaginative scenario where a demon is writing to a, a, a junior demon <laughs> to, to instruct this demon on how to basically destroy humanity. <laughs> and in order to do that, the, this head demon has to describe how God has set up the world so that they know how to deconstruct it. And, and this is what, what he writes about um, the seasons. He says, since humans need change, God, being a hedonist at heart, has made change pleasurable to them, just as he made eating pleasurable. But since he does not wish them to make change um, an end in itself, he has balanced the love of change in them by a love of permanence. He has contrived to gratify both tastes together in the world he has made by the union of change and permanence, which we call rhythm. He gives them the seasons, each season different, yet every year the same, so that spring is always felt as a novelty, yet always as the recurrence of an immemorial theme. He gives them in his church a spiritual year. They change from fast to a feast, but it is the same feast as before. I love that. I love that. And I This and is I, back in the 1940s that he wrote this. <laughs> and and what's what's great about one, I love I love the description of God being a hedonist. Yes. <laughs> First off, that's 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 wonderful. Um but 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 what both of you are saying and what C.S. Lewis is saying is is that this then speaks to the nature of of God mm-hmm. is that God is if we're thinking of God as the one who is in the heavens rearranging the sky, God becomes reliable. Mm-hmm. God becomes steadfast. God becomes dependable. God becomes faithful. And we we know that in the midst of the turbulence, in the midst of the oppression, that God is there because mm-hmm. God is constant. And and God is change at the same time, meaning that that sense of that this oppression can end, mm. which which then gives you hope. Mm. So Leah, where where is God inviting us to interact with creation here? I think the one of the ways that I see God inviting us to interact with creation is to get outside and observe the sky observe those signs and seasons that 
show us exactly what you were talking about, this steadfastness, this dependability. I I was reading in um, Eco Bible that Jews will, you know, they, they have now they have like a whole online calendar to figure out when the Sabbath starts. But a lot of people will still follow the tradition of looking up at the sky to count the three stars that mark the end of Shabbat rather than to consult their watch. Like that being attuned to what is going on in nature. Um, So I would encourage people as much as possible, given the oppressive (laughs) capitalist uh, rhythms that are being imposed upon us, try a discipline of getting up with the sun over the over a, a week or even a month and notice how things change very gradually um but you know praying the matins praying in that morning time i think is is one way to just start to pay attention to how god interacts in the transitions of the of the daily rhythms and then the weekly rhythms the monthly rhythms and the yearly rhythms just being in touch with it, paying attention just pay attention i think is one of the most powerful things we can do it seems it's it's simple but it's not easy it's one of those no. things that's simple but it's not easy not easy because there are so <laughs> many things vying for our attention that paying attention to those natural rhythms um doesn't come naturally anymore. Um, well, well, again, I, I'm I'm really finding uh, the way that Leah's framing this to be very fruitful. Um, when, when I was when we first read through this passage, I was imagining though the some of the communities I'm a part of that really like committees, <laughs> church communities. <laughs> I was initially imagining them being kind of excited about the specificity of this, right? It's like, oh, okay, write down, okay, what day is it? And so we do how many things? And so we, oh, and we get to do it quickly. So it'll be more efficient. You know, so I was, but, but actually, you know, a lot of forces in our culture push us to hold these very spaces with contempt, right? Ooh. To, to, want to look over the routine and the everyday and especially the work of food preparation. Mm. Um, and there's, there's a, a, a book that really brought home for me, you know, what, what we've been talking about, like the kind of the, the rhythms of, of festival time and how that relates to regular time. Um, and you, you might dig this, Derek, given your uh, kind of current project on a just kitchen, but there's this book called Mer- Miriam's Kitchen, which is about this um, woman who uh, kind of, she, she was a reporter before, but she's, she's kind of making a shift in her life and is trying to keep a kosher kitchen and she's learning from her mother-in-law. She, she's Jewish too. But anyway, so the book is all about the, the processes of keeping a kosher kitchen and how those everyday processes around meal preparation and these kind of like little routine um, details that we would typically hold in contempt are actually one of the ways to carry forward what Leah's talking about, right? So it's mm. so the by keeping the kosher kitchen, her experience of time shifts in the mm. book. She says from being focused on the work week to now she she has to spend all this time, and so the the holiday time, the festival time, starts to become the center of gravity. But and, and so then that permeates the rest of her life. But, but that's sustained through the routine details of keeping kosher. Wow. Uh, you know, I kind of 
go back to just kind of my my predilection is that food is is one of the ways that we connect with the natural world. It's one of the primary ways that we connect with the natural world. And and to be able to create this sense of of seasonality and the movement of the seasons in your kitchen in the discipline of the ways that we move through our kitchen and the in the ways that we think about our preparations and the ways that we think about what that space demands of us kind of day in and day out and and have that be a part of our season our thinking of the seasons and the movement of creation and and yet the steadiness and steadfastness of god i i all about that. So finally, uh, Leah, where is there a call to action for the church in this passage? I think what I would like to see is some intentionality around um, a congregation making plans to gather in nature, to worship in nature, to walk in nature on a regular basis as a spiritual discipline. I, I used to do this and, and I, I know how powerful it can be where um, with the, the youth in my congregation in the first church that I served, we did something called music in the park. And I invited the, the youth and confirmation students to um, pick a piece of music from their contemporary like whatever they're listening to that they think in some way reminds them of God or religious or spiritual questions. And we go after, we go out to a local park right across the street from the church and we would listen to the music and we would, um, we would have lunch and we would just be in nature and think about the lyrics and think about how, you know, where are we encountering God? And Gosh, that was like 20 years ago. And I still get Facebook messages from some of those students who are now adults who say, hey, Pastor Shade, remember when we used to do music in the park? And like that, that stayed with them. Mm -hmm. That is a faith formation activity. Mm -hmm. So again, being outside as much as possible, uh, gathering for prayer, taking walks, Look, you know, what do we see? What do we, you know, cultivating habits of attentiveness in creation is something that I, I would love to see churches do more of. I try not to glass half full the pandemic too much. I do think one of the great advantages it gave us was that it gave us a sense that we are more than what happens inside of our buildings. Mm. And, and it gave us an excuse to do things outside of our buildings. And so I, I know a lot of congregations before they felt safe going back inside their buildings, did things on their lawns, did things, you know, um, in parks. And I just, I just hope that as, you know, maybe this is coming to the pandemic is coming to an end that we don't lose that lesson. Worship can happen in a lot of different spaces and, and maybe needs to happen in a lot of different spaces. If we're going to truly get the sense of, of ourselves as part of the created order and, mm. and God being around us. So I mm. think that's a, that's a great challenge for, for congregations. I would second what, what's been said. And also in thinking about these kind of festival times that allow us to get in touch with the rhythms of the created order. Uh, I think that there. One of the things I've been kind of writing on and, and even trying to, to live into in, in my life is how to think about festivals, festival time and holidays, not as rest, 
um, but as kind of spaces of reorientation, right? And mm -hmm. so that's what's happening with the people here. And, and that's, and so, I mean, that's in, in the liturgy that's, that this, that this uh, passage is calling for, right? Because it's about both the Passover and it's about how the Passover is um, remembered and fleshed and kind of uh, carried out uh, by, by, the, by the generations. And so I think that festival time and holiday time is actually a revolutionary space that allows us to have a different experience of the rhythm of our days. It allows us to have mm -hmm. a different kind of reorientation of what bonds us and what our relationships are. And I think in those spaces, a lot of uh, the, the moral imagination can be expanded and a lot of creativity can happen. And so I guess part of the call then is to, to try and find a way in the midst of all the exhaustion and busyness to see festival time as this uh, experimental place, not just of renewal, but of reorientation. now move to John chapter 13 verses 1 to 17 and 31 to 35. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around him. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, you do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, one who is bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you, for he knew who was to betray him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. After he had washed their feet, had put on his robe, and had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example, that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And jumping into verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Wilson, let's start. I'll start with you. Where is creation in this story? Well, I guess the, the first place I want to point to is, is where we just were with the feast of the Passover. Um, and so to, to add a, a couple of dimensions, at least so in, in Jesus' time, um, this feast coincided with the barley festival. Right? So in the, the kind of the, the main growing season uh, in the Near East is, is kind of the spring into the summer. That's when the kind of um, wheat crops grow, right? Because you get the, there's these big winter, these big uh, rains that come in the winter and then things grow. The first thing that comes is the barley. And so this is the kind of the, the, the festival of, in a sense, the, of, of the first 
uh, great harvest of food that's available in the kind of yearly cycle. But barley is also a coarser grain, and so it's the bread of the poor man or of the poor. So anyway, so, so the backdrop of all of this is uh, that kind of creational setting of people coming into Jerusalem and having this experience of joy where create where they where they are nourished by the the gifts of creation but layered on top of that is also this memory of the exodus right so passover is also about um people being enslaved uh, and then liberated and that experience in jesus time um, was something that often you know it was that helped to bring to the fore what was always in the background which was roman imperial occupation and the kind of the rule of the elites. And so often during Passovers, uh, there would be a, an, an insurrection, right? So there's mm. kind of this ecological context of creation as providing exactly what nourishes us. But then there's the political context of uh, that creation being, I guess, siphoned off um, and, and part of structures of exploitation and oppression. Um, so I think that that set kind of sets the background. I think some other important places where creation comes out is again, it's it's a meal, right? So it, it, I think the NRSV renders at one point uh, the word supper as table, <laughs> um, you know, and it, and it renders the word feast as festival. So it, it somewhat obscures, you know, how central food is here. Um, but also, I think that it, for, for me, the the some of the key parts of creation that are highlighted are in verse five, where there's talk of water. Right. And so I think that these waters are elemental. I think they're creational and I think they're also baptismal. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also the mention of feet. Right. And mm -hmm. so these are actual feet coming into the house and they've got dirt on them. Right. They've got the soil on them. And so uh, I think that the feet are, are kind of maybe the place where humans meet creation, where creation's brought into the house. Um, and they're also... The, the place where kind of certain people who, who work with the earth, certain people who are lower to the earth um, are regarded as lower than. And so we, we, we see both, so we see in the feet that, that same tension from the beginning where there's this nourishing creation, it's the dirt that feeds us and, and renews us. But under the kind of rubric of empire, those things that are associated with the feet are, are regarded as kind of um, lowly and worthy of, of humiliation. Yeah, one of the things that has always struck me about this is uh, picking up on Wilson's point of, you know, those who are considered lower on the social hierarchy are often those who are most, whose, whose occupation has to do with working with the soil, the water, whatever. So washing is women's work. Hmm. And when I think about those who wash, those who are tasked with cleansing the dirt and let's face it, the excrement off of our bodies. Um, I think of my own mom who had to do that with me. Um, I think about the, the housekeeping that comes into the hotel room after I leave and has to scrub away whatever I've left behind. Um, I, I mean, I think about uh, th this passage forces me to think about those who wash. And I, I think that the, the fact that the Jesus equates himself 
with the, this class of people is really, it's an indictment on those of us who want to see ourselves as separate from creation, the dirtier parts of creation, and, and it's, a, it's a call to justice. So you've, you've sort of have this like A equals B, B equals C, so A equals C. So if Jesus equates himself with a servant and the disciples want to equate themselves with Jesus because they're following him, then your A equals C equals disciples have to be servants. So there's this really interesting equation that inverts the economy that is imposed on us. You know, it's really interesting knowing what we know about the disciples and I'm, and I'm picking up on, on the piece of how we often distance ourselves from creation. And then those who have the jobs that are, are, dealing directly with creation tend to be on lower of lower hierarchical status. And we know who the disciples were. Some of them, a significant portion of them were fishermen mm-hmm. who were in the elements who were, and, and how easy it is to make that hierarchy and say, you know, even for people who are doing what we would consider kind of menial tasks, the, the task of a fisherman in that time was not an elevated role can still create hierarchies and still say, no, that this is beneath us. Jesus, this is beneath you. And, and just kind of that natural tendency we have as, as humans to, to create those, those modalities of being better than something, being better than creation, being better than those who have to work with it. I also want to give a shout out to uh, Mary who anointed Jesus' feet with her hair and there's this scandalous fleshiness to <laughs> what she did and it's it's like he he I just can't help but think that her doing this to him planted the idea that oh my gosh that's what this is all about and then mm. here we are and he's he's not I mean, it is a kind of anointing. Mm-hmm. It is anointing into service, mm-hmm. and and so um, I, I again, there's this this there's this reversal, this pulling inside out of the expectations. Um, so I just want to give credit to where I think credit is due for this act that he does. <laughs> so Wilson, where is where is God interacting with creation here? One one thing I want to say before I get to that is. I think that you know, John is often regarded as kind of the spiritual gospel. And I, I think that's entirely right, depending on how we define spiritual, right? So if if the spirit is kind of that power that moves between people, right, that blows through creation, um, that is within our current understanding in the world of the possible, something that feels ephemeral, but is actually the power that makes transformation in another in a new creation possible, right? This is the spiritual gospel. But if by spiritual we mean um, that this is a gospel that's about heavenly bliss, it's entirely separated from hum- from bodily life. I don't think that's the case at all. And so I, I just want to say that because because in the, again in the first verse in the first few verses there is this talk about Jesus um, departing from the world. You know I, he doesn't use the word exodus, um, but given that it's a kind of a Passover background, right? I think that 
the world, right? The word is cosmos, which has a strong sense of order. And again, it's a poetic word. I don't want to kind of deflate it down into just being about the Roman imperial order. But in John, I think a lot of what's at stake with when he talks about the world and the problems of the world, it's about the imperial order. And so I think what Jesus is doing is he's right. It's an exodus. Hmm. He is departing from that world into the new world. So I think that's that's part of the backdrop. So then how does how does God at work um, in, in, in this creation? I think, well, to, to return to what what's bringing people to Jerusalem in the first place, the barley festival, God provides and he nourishes, right? And heals, renews. God as creator. And then Christ, um, as bringing about the new creation, is providing, nourishing, healing. He's, he's washing feet, right? He's engaging in an intimate act of care yes and so then that's how god is at work in the passage but then empire is at work and leah's already highlighted this and and, and so so you derek that that peter right ha, is is kind of objecting to the the viability and the vitality and the, the centrality of these acts of intimate care but by wanting to reinstitute the hierarchies of the empire and I think that's also part of the the interspersed, you know, uh, parts of the the story of Judas's betrayal, right? And so so Judas, who is also profoundly important, he is the holder of the common purse, person that is making, um, or that is charged with making a certain kind of social and economic relationship possible. He's also someone who ends up or is is betrays Jesus the most, right? So so I think that these kind of these. The shortcomings of the disciples are are the ways in which the empire is kind of also making its uh, presence known in the story. So to pick up on that, you can tell that the that John's community of faith has not at all resolved its issues with Judas because mm. you get clues all along. It's like Jesus is aside. You're not all clean. Looking at you, buddy. <laughs> and you, know, the, you get these asides all throughout this gospel that show us that that this tension exists. And so this idea of what is clean, what is not clean, how does cleanliness and betrayal, how are these you know, you know, conflated in, in this particular story and by this particular gospel author, I think is a it's really interesting that this here comes Jesus basically washing off the dirt, washing off the, the excrement. And the implication is there's some stains that ain't coming out, some stains that ain't coming out. Um, and how do we how do we grapple with that? I, I don't I don't think John gives us a really satisfactory answer. And so I think it's more descriptive of what we deal with today, those who have, we feel have betrayed us, um, and the language that we use to describe those broken relationships often have to do with these categories of who's clean and who's not clean. Yeah, that's really heavy. That idea of, of Judas and those like Judas, whoever we interpret that, that being unresolved, like that just kind of sitting out there, of, uh, you know, um, in a way that Jesus knows it's there and knows it's real and can't do anything about it. 
like mm. Jesus can't do anything about mm. it. Like, mm. ooh, that's mm-hmm. <laughs> that's there's that's, the finitude right there. Yeah. There are yeah. limits. There are limits. And I think that speaks to the, you know, we've got this juxtaposition of the transcendence and um, the incarnation and the imminence. And there are there are limits to our bodies, to our minds, to our relationships um, that that we can't always transcend. And so as we're thinking about this particular holy day in the in the triduum. Um, Monday Thursday is very much about incompleteness for those traditions that do the stripping of the altar in preparation for Good Friday and read Psalm uh, 22. There's just this unsettledness mm-hmm. that we sometimes have to sit with. Yeah. And I think that so. So how does this connect with creation? There's a lot of unsettledness within creation right now where we don't have things worked out we you know there's lots of feelings of betrayal um, about those who have taken advantage of their positions as the purse bearers of the purse and have done terrible horrible probably irreparable things and we're living in the midst of that so i just think i I just wanted to name that where is god inviting us to interact with creation here, Wilson. Well, I, I, I want to say I'm I'm really grateful for the way that Leah framed um, the Exodus passage because I think it helps us get into this passage with a lot, a lot of without a lot of the kind of atonement baggage, hmm. <laughs> right? And and maybe it would have been better just to have this entire conversation without that baggage. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I I mean, I part of part of my life's work I think is joining in the efforts of speaking about Christ and the path of Christian discipleship in the church in ways that counter and do not center the uh, redemptive suffering. Uh, So I think that there are a lot of ways in which, uh, and certain accounts of the atonement, right? So, and, and focusing on Christ's sacrificial death, uh, rob the church of its agency. We could go on and on about that, but maybe we'll, we'll instead talk about uh, an, an alternative trajectory. Because I think in, in verse 15, we get a, a great example of another tradition, which is you know, the imitation of Christ. Right? So Christ calls upon the disciples to imitate them. But interestingly, the, the you in that verse is plural, right? And so we never, ever, ever imitate Christ as individuals, right? Mm. We mm. only ever imitate Christ as the body of Christ. Thank you. And, and, and so, and, and so again, and, and I'm, I'm, I wasn't thinking about this until Leah had said it, but we, we also do that with Judas in our midst, <laughs> right? So, mm-hmm. so it's, it's always a, a, a partial and a, a work of a broken body, but there is a work here of imitating Christ. And, and that work is a work of washing the feet, right? Mm-hmm. And so Peter, Peter later, the head of the church says, oh, let's wash the hands and the head too. And he's like, no, no the feet that's good let's start there right and so mm. the imitation is mm. staying close to the ground wow. staying close to the lowly right and and caring down there and learning from that space um and and then that's also the work of love now again to get back into problems of redemptive violence um right so there's 
Jesus ends with this commandment to love others as I've loved you. And, and as part of John, right, there's this line that, you know, there's, there is no love greater than, than that, which who gives his life for his friends. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think a lot of times we look at this love of service as a love that's kind of equated with that kind of humility and violence and humiliation, right? So it's the empire that responds to Jesus's love with death. And so one of the things Jesus is saying is in the face of empire, sometimes that means humility. Sometimes that means self-giving. Sometimes that means sacrifice. That's because of the empire. What this passage gives us is a different account of love. It's an account of love that is about care and intimacy and community, right? There's, there's no reason to read love here as self-sacrifice or as humiliation. It is just about care. And so there's actually a positive vision of imitating Christ, right? Because if you ever read that book by Thomas Akempis, Imi The Imitation of Christ, I actually think it's kind of an awful book, right? It's, it's just all this kind of like sackcloth and ashes and all about this blood and this sacrifice and this humiliation that imitating Christ means. No, right here we have an account of imitating Christ that is joyful, it might stink a little bit, but it's <laughs> joyful and it's intimate and it's something that builds up the, the community, right? And so, and so again, we are called to participate in the order of the creator, which is nurturing and life-giving, not in the order of, of empire, which is hierarchical and humiliating mm -hmm. and violent. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with what Wilson has, has put out here. I would like to see congregations think about what it looks like to do ministry with the people who are washing the feet yeah. and, and not as, Oh, let's go on a mission trip and then come back and we're all done. Like what does solidarity truly look like? What does it look like to get down in the dirty water with people to make that, a way of life, like a, a way of, and not as, again, like you said, it's, it's not, this isn't about debasement. This is about being in solidarity with those who are forced into that. But when we're there, we find this incredible joy that elevates the entire community. I just, I love the point that you're saying, Wilson, that this is not about, you know, me, whipping my own back and, and, you know, it's all about me and Jesus. It's about we and Jesus. <laughs> it's about, and, 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 and how can we find those, those points of connection, community and solidarity so that we can enact justice together? I think that's what we're being invited to in, in Jesus's words and actions. I, I don't know that it can be said enough this idea that that you is plural, that there is no imitation of Christ for us as individuals. Like that is, that is, is an incredibly powerful statement. And it causes us to think about all of the ways that we are taught and convinced that we can have this imitation of Christ in our loner, lone wolf American individual kind of way. And that's just nowhere in scripture. It's nowhere to be found. But then this idea of 
And I, I, I think this is like, sometimes I, I will, someone will say something about scripture that I've never heard it said this way. And like, like, oh, I'm taking that with me forever. And I think your, what you just said about Peter, Peter's, Peter's insistence here that, you know, first off, he's rejecting the idea that Jesus would serve him at all. But then when when he comes around seemingly very quickly to the idea, he then says, okay, head and uh, my, my, not just my feet, but my head and my hands too. And Jesus says, I only need the feet to be clean. And, and, and what does that mean for that reorientation of the work of compassion, the work of solidarity being for those who are in the direct contact with the soil, the direct con- contact with the excrement, the direct contact with the dirtiest parts of life. And, and, and if we were only serving those, we would be doing the work of the church. And so much of the work of the church for those of us who have done congregational life feels like it's about making the hands and the head comfortable. And this is really challenging. Like, this is a really challenging way of thinking about the scripture when you think about the ways that our institutions are set up. So I'm I'm like, that's going to sit with me for a little bit. So then where where is there a call to action for the church here? I I mean, you went right to the place where I want to go. I I think that the call to action is centering practices of care. Hmm. Um, And that can be stuff that happens internal to the church. Um, right. So all, all kinds of different practices of care. And, and again, the, the lens of and the areas of food, I think, are often helpful for this because um, but, but, but just so everywhere where we do care. I think we need to kind of center those and learn from those and allow them to build up our communities and our capacities. Right. Because because care is something that is in our kind of public calculus something that's regarded as an externality, something, you know, it's unpaid labor typically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's something that is not included in our calculus, but actually I think centering practices of care that we, we can, we should learn from those spaces. Right. And so, and so, and so I think, you know, some, some illustration of this thought of in more public terms is, is like some of the stuff that's come out of the movement for black lives. It says something like care, not cops. Right. Which which is advocating for the use of resources to go toward education, social workers, community development, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so instead of spending our resources on trying to get control through coercion and violence, let's spend our time and our energy creating cooperative communities, creating Mm -hmm. communities that cultivate nourish people. Right. I think we could look at the church in similar ways and we can look at the church as, you know, depending on the community, maybe getting involved in in that call for care, not cops. Um, And maybe we can even think of it in the church as care, not committees. (laughs) So, (laughs) right. Which, which is not to say let's dissolve all organization in the church, but let's really try and think about, you know, what happens if we center care and social trust and cooperation and, and we try and, and learn from those and, and that we take a critical look at structures that always push us toward efficiency and productivity. Yeah. Um, and so then if, what does all this have to do with creation? I mean, if, I think it's the structures of empire that are causing the problems of oppression and ecological destruction. And, and I think it's, it's through this space of care 
um, that we can begin to find these transformations. Like, so, I mean, thinking about feet, you know, makes me think about my, my son, he's just seven years old, but he's, he's one of those kids when he gets excited and he kind of like jumps up and down or he'll just, we'll just be sitting on the couch. Like I'll be reading to him and his feet are just like pushing against everything. Right. And so, uh, Occupational therapists, I guess, tell us that, you know, his, his body is looking for some input. And so I've been kind of uh, lately been trying to, you know, take take the advice. And, you know, and, and I do this thing, we do this thing called knee knocks where I press on his feet, I, I massage his feet, I stretch his feet out. And, and, I, and, I, and I think that, one, I think that kind of that shift in looking allows me to see maybe some needs I didn't see, right, that he, he needs that kind of, you know. Uh, input into his body. Um, and I think a lot of times we, we ignore the input that's needed right through the feet. Right. But I think that also just kind of getting on my hands and knees and, and doing that kind of act of care and service changes my orientation. And I think those kinds of changes in orientation are at the heart of um, countering the empire and, and creating a different world. Yeah. And I think adding the non-human world to our our orientation of care i think also then brings creation into this um that our our orientation of care can also be about the cleanliness of our water the orientation of care can also be about planting a tree it can also be about um the orientation of care that that makes sure that there are healthy pollinators um, in a system for our for our food system and and for our world to have those sorts of things. I, I think if we're if we're willing to invite the non-human world, again, you know the the contact with creation is often the the marker in our as you've said really well, it's often the marker of low status in our in our in our culture. But maybe if we're willing to shift our orientation to the non-human world as a, as a center for care, as a, as a locus for our, our, our compassion and our caring, there's also an invitation for the church to say, there are, there are more spaces for care than just, just the humans in our, in our family and in our community. And I think that's, that's also a beautiful piece of what this invitation to the church could be. And I think it also kind of reminds us of, or reminds me of the the Peter dynamic, right? To where he is not comfortable receiving the care either, right? So we, we're both to give care, but we have to be receiving care. And I think part of what we have to acknowledge is that we are completely dependent upon, like a child, <laughs> upon creation in the non-human world, right? And I think that that refusal of care in part is about kind of a, a desire to want to both, so in that situation, both to kind of try and respect the place that Jesus maintains in the hierarchy so as to maintain the hierarchy. But I think it's also the kind of vulnerability and independence that comes from receiving that, that, that kind of care. Psalm 116, verses 1 to 2 and 12 to 19. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. 
What shall I return to the Lord for all his bounty to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful ones. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the child of your serving girl. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you a thanksgiving sacrifice and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst of Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Uh, where is creation in this passage? Um, well, there's a sense of recreation initially in it. Um, again, uh, we're in these uh, Hillel Psalms, which is all of Holy Week, which is stunning, of course, that uh, the Psalms that are for Passover for our Jewish siblings are still the ones that we utilize for Holy Week, and particularly on uh, on Monday, Thursday. And, and uh, I mean, this is the, the song that they use um, for the fourth cup of Passover. And uh, often I'm told at least called the, uh, the cup of salvation, which of course, it's probably why we utilize it for Monday, Thursday as well. When, uh, when there are those who say that Jesus reinterprets the fourth cup. Um, but it's also a, a song of, well, obviously it's a song of praise, but it's a song of thanksgiving. It's one of the few Psalms that starts off with, I love the Lord. I, so it has that sense of love that almost sounds more New Testament. But uh, in the way the Psalm is split up, where we where we take out all oh, how the snares of death have encompassed me and the pangs of Sheol hold me, which is verse three, and kind of all those pieces of the saving of life, where it obviously suggests someone who's been sick or someone who's struggling or something, and then they've moved past this. But when you get to verse 12 and you see that piece too, what shall I return to the Lord for all his bounty to me? You have to then begin to imagine not just of lifting up the cup of salvation where you're immediately talking about Passover. But again, so you have, you know, the bounty uh, initially when you're thinking Monday, Thursday, and, and uh, we were Presbyterians, at least I'm a Presbyterian or most Protestants, we focus much more on Monday, Thursday than Good Friday. Um, even though I would say that Good Friday is probably should be the primary kind of uh, holiday of Christians, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but uh, what bounties are we talking about? If it's Passover, it's a bounty of, you know, freedom from slavery. If it's Monday, Thursday, perhaps it's a bounty of this kind of notion of, uh, of uh, you know, Jesus and what he's about to do on the cross and what communion might mean, or even the foot washing piece of all these kinds of things. Uh, for the psalmist originally, it was probably the bounty of, hey, my health is freed. But the joy of the very sort of bounties that can immediately be called into play because of the holidays that this psalm is for, uh, both for Christians, for Jews, again, if we tie it to the sense of the Passover, which is still a spring festival, or, or we can just begin to comment in the midst of the whole thing is, what really are all the bounties that God has given us? And thereby, I mean, we have to go to creation as we're so much a part of creation and ponder these bounties. One spot from my church, I can look through the valley on a clear day and see the ocean. And I get to stand at a different place and see rolling hills, some that have vineyards on them and some that have fields on them with all sorts of things. And as I get to go home, I see fruit stands of people who have picked things that are locally and close. And the bounty of creation that is all around me is part and parcel what gives me thanks. And this is a praise psalm of giving God thanks for what God's done. And we are remembering what God has done in this huge event that is the central part of our religiosity. And we are coupling it with the central event of the Jewish people as well in the center of their religiosity. 
I mean, of the of the Pentateuch, basically the 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 four books after Genesis are all about you know Exodus or Passover, how to celebrate these things. And they utilize this psalm to do it. So the whole thing is, look at what God's given us. And as Christians, we're like, look at what God's given us uh, in this kind of event with Jesus. And as Jesus is doing these kind of pieces. But then again, it gets to widen that or even narrow it maybe a little bit and just enjoy the Thanksgiving. And, and I, I'll offer you a Thanksgiving sacrifice and call on the name of the Lord. You've loosed my bonds. What kind of bonds have been loosed and what kind of bonds need to be loosed? Because we don't see these things. How often can I come to my church in this remarkably stunning and beautiful area where if anyone is at all questioning whether or not they are full of bounties, full of blessings, full of reason for gratitude, simply by existing here, I should have my eyes opened to that reality. But I often don't. So I have some kind of bond with which then I am not participating in or paying attention to. And if I'm going to, again, see this kind of piece, it's where's creation in this passage. Part of where creation is in this passage is the invitation to ask God to loose the bonds that keep me from seeing creation that's all around me so that I might recognize the fullness of the bounty that has been provided to me, to all of us. And then when you begin to incorporate the sense of all of us, it's not just humanity, but the fullness of creation that's all around me. I'm watching things grow. I'm watching birds go everywhere and sing. I'm watching flowers bloom. I'm watching creation be in some kind of harmony that I know it's not actually in. And so now if I open my eyes to the fullness of this bounty and I recognize that I'm a part of the fullness of this bounty and I'm going to say, what shall I return to the Lord for all of his bounty to me? It can't just be a gratitude with words again. It has to be a sense of the responsibility that I've recognized this is part of me doing that. So where do I see God and creation in this passage, just that one verse that hits me so far over the head that the rest of the verse begins to speak to me about how I'll offer Thanksgiving sacrifices, how I'll pay my vows. What does this mean? And do it in the presence of all the peoples. So it's not just me personally. I have to do it publicly in such a fashion as to recognize that this is the fullness of my bounty. And now what am I going to give back to God recognizing the fullness of this bounty as I recognize it in the fullness of the peoples? So it really is an invitation, in my opinion, for the way that you're going about these lines of interpretation, which I think is brilliant, is to, again, uh, open our eyes to the fullness of said bounty that even can usurp how we've minimized the passage for the sake of the holidays for which the passage is utilized. And, and, and again, we get to remember for the Passover piece still, too, uh, it's all about creation. And if we're, going to, if we're going to talk about Monday, Thursday in the institution of the Lord's Supper or the washing of the feet, and, but again, you have this water here that nobody's seen to wash feet except the Christ. And then we have basic things of wheats and grapes to give all these pieces to. So I, you almost have to play with this notion, as we said last week, how like palms are the one time that we bring in. And I love that, Avery, by the way, still, like I, I've been delighted with this notion of this is when we bring in something that's not just decoration, but part of creation for this. But then I started being like, can we just acknowledge that communion is always that? Yeah. 
these incredibly basic things that are part of the bounty, that were part of exactly what they were doing for Passover initially as well, recognizing first fruits, utilizing the stuff from the resources they gathered in their harvest festivals and had Yom Kippur and their other holidays that are saturated around there, now bringing them back because that's part of the bounty that's still being provided. And, and now we have this psalm that is like, okay, so what is all the bounty? And hell, it's all of creation on all of humanity and all creatures. I think that there's two things that come to mind here, which is that, you know, creation is sort of, uh, or the bounty of creation is moving in both directions in this passage, mm-hmm. you know, and that there's this reflection, what shall I turn, return to the Lord for all of his bounty to me, this recognition that creation is a gift of God, um, not a gift solely for humans, but a gift that we get to participate in. And what, what is the return? What do we return to God? We lift up the cup of salvation. You know, we lift up these, these gifts, this wine that we have partnered with God and with God's creation in producing. Um, we offer a Thanksgiving sacrifice, which is, you know, of course, a sacrifice of a lamb, of a, a living being. And, you know, I think it's just amazing to me that our response, this call and response with God is mediated through the gifts of creation through the gifts of the land, the beneficence of the land, that our response to that gift is to take it and to love it and to cherish it and to make something beautiful with it and to give that back to God. The second piece that is really compelling to me here is that um, this is a, you know, it's, it's a psalm about death and illness, really. You know, when you read through the full psalm, uh, and I'm so intrigued by verse 15 here, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful ones. And I think when we look to creation, that is what we see, that creation is powered by this constant cycle of death and transformation. That precious in my sight is the death of the leaves that are outside my window that are slowly accumulating and building into the humus that are going to feed the white pine tree from which they fell. And I think it's, we participate in that, you know, we, and I guess this is, this is the, the Ash Wednesday here, right? Is we will return to the dust. We will return to the soil and that is precious. And, um, you know, that too is our gift to God or, or should be our gift to God because we are contributing to those acts of creation. I love that. And it, it adds it adds the component of death being a part of the cycle of life, which we so often want to ignore, that death is, in fact, a component of, of creation and a needed component of creation to do what creation does. I mean, like, it, is, it becomes better if you incorporate the fullness of the psalm. And I think that's a brilliant idea because it has a tendency of sounding a little too... Um, I have the joy, 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 joy down in my soul. Where and and um and and, and again, nothing of the celebration uh, of Monday Thursday is that kind of celebration. There is mm-hmm. there's a looming quality of death that's still there. Um, and so while we can quickly look, oh look at all this stuff, the come of my salvation, whatever else, and we can certainly feel theologize that in such a fashion as to be like, okay, this is where we pull that off. But the snares, let's, you mind if I read the verses Please. we didn't read? 
Please. So three through like 11 here. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. I mean, just verse three. <laughs> yeah. Like that talks about more of where I think most of us kind of feel. And especially if, if we're just going to speak of creation in this moment. I mean, uh, creation is at a point of Holocaust that I we're not even while people may be more inclined to believe that we're doing literally nothing mm. to try as a, as a whole group of people to curb what's happening. And, um, and it feels like that snares of death are encompassing me. Like, I, I know a sense, especially that, I mean, I'm born in 1980 and anyone who's born kind of like lower than me, they feel it even more. Because, uh, I mean, I still kind of have that cusp into the old world. But, I mean, let's be honest. And then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray, save my life. Mm. God, couldn't we literally have some folk like save us here? Um, anyone familiar with anyone? Either of you familiar with Anne Lamont's um, uh, help? Thanks. Wow. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like you can see those three prayers in some of this type of thing. Like there's a help here. And if we took this Psalm out of like just the pieces of the lectionary, which I love lectionary, but sometimes, I mean, this is 19 verses. I mean, anyone preaching this coming Sunday on the prodigal son, like that is almost the full of Luke 15. (laughs) I think we can handle 19 verses. And it helps kind of give a richer flavor to the fullness of experience that we're going through. And, and, and like, yeah, like things are awful on so many levels. And this idea of death encircling us feels all too real. It must have felt all too real to Jesus. It must have felt all too real to a whole bunch of Hebrews who are painting blood on their on their doorpost and pondering what might happen. And it feels all too real to a whole bunch of people in this world right now, especially those who are being affected by this the most. I mean, third world peoples, and they, do we even say that anymore? We should come up with a new term if we do, um, who, who have been no longer been able to produce their own crops because us rich people want quinoa or whatever else. And, and, and these snares of death that are encircling us on everything that are in juxtaposition with, I mean, I'm just going to keep going. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord protects the simple. I mean, damn, like, couldn't we who, I mean, we're having this, you're recording audio from Zoom um, so that I can see things faces and we can have these things that are absolutely, if I went back 50 years and said that any of this was possible, people would shoot me and thought that I was from like the 31st century or something like that and something bad had happened. But there are simple, those that we consider simple because they're not all complex like us with all these kinds of things and they have this simple life. Like this is this is who God protects. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. So in verse seven, we mm. see that bountifully again. Um, but it's connected with a sense of simplicity. And so if we took the fullness of it and we were to speak of bountifully and simplicity. And couple that with this very real notion of being surrounded by the cord of death and shouting out in that Anne Lamont version of help. Our thanks then comes from a place of 
well, I have more than I need. And the wow comes with like, look at everything that already is. And it kind of incorporates all those kinds of things, but it, it, it gives more credence for Passover and Monday, Thursday. It's not a celebration, but of people being surrounded by death and the sense of help me and being honest with the death that's right there, but forcing our eyes to recognize that we don't need to continue killing everything because we in fact have enough. Mm. Um, but eight through 11, like for you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I walked before the Lord in the land of the living. I kept my faith. Even when I said I am greatly afflicted. I said in my consternation, everyone is a liar. Damn. That'll speak to these moments in all kinds of ways where we pay attention to the holidays, pay attention to the reality of our own situation and bring in like, yeah, our souls feel like they're in death. I know sometimes I weep over the state of the world and I feel like I'm stumbling all over kind of things. And what's it mean to walk before the Lord in the land of the living? What is the land of the living? Can you posit that in a sermon and talk about that? Mm-hmm. I kept my faith, even when I said I'm greatly afflicted. Can we have some people who have that sense of faith, that sense that God has given us some kind of purpose, some kind of reason to be here at this time? And what we're going through in an effort to do some kind of creation justice ministries, in an effort of trying to make this world something that's going to be uh, available to my grandkids, grandkids in a way that resembles something like, can I keep my faith there in that faith that that's kind of peace, even in my consternation, when I hear people talk about it on political levels, and I want to say everyone is a liar. And I honestly believe that most of them are. (laughs) And but then. I also get to look back at myself in the midst of that. How am I a liar? How have I said I want these things to happen? And what do I still do that shows me to be a liar? And then comes that question that seems to be that central piece in verse 12. What shall I say? Or what shall I return to the Lord for all his bounty to me? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the, the passage has to be saved from the lectionary by being a full of the passage i'm in total agreement so let's 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 keep going and let's keep going with the fullness of the of the psalm in mind um where is where is god interacting with creation god's dealing with death and as avery pointed out with verse 15 which is actually where i was going to use that question on verse 15 still too is uh, i love i I absolutely do i love it as well and um although i I believe avery said it more preciously than i ever would have said it precious is the sight of the lord in the sight of the lord is the death of his faithful ones like where is god interacting with creation in the in the, the the cycle of living and the joy of how things happen this kind of way. And both Passover and Monday Thursday are moments of death. And the death, there's a beautiful rabbinical story, and I don't remember where it was or where I read it, but, um, you know, like, it's, it's after... The, the Hebrews cross the Red Sea and the Red Sea closes in on the, on the Egyptians and, and the angels in heaven are all rejoicing that the people are free and God turns to them and silences them and says, do you have any idea what I just did <laughs> to free these people? So much of those who are my people were killed. Do you have any idea what I just did? Stop celebrating. 
Mm-hmm. And we're talking of these things of death and trying to turn it into a celebration or the death of all sorts of stuff. And how's God interacting? We can have that preciousness. We can see it in the circle of things. We can see it. And I mean, I was going to talk about some kind of way of things following and like growth coming from it. And it does sound more like Ash Wednesday now that he says that. So I don't want to say it quite that same way. But <laughs> nevertheless, I mean, there's so much death coming here that seems to be some kind of life, but it points out the fullness of things. Again, it's just the full of things how does god interact with creation how does any of this happen how many stars had to explode so that all of the different matter that could make us became us um how much of the it's just it's the fullness of things and it opens us up to the reality of the fullness of things right around us i mean even if we're going to take time to say that spring is just the beginning the beginning but the beginning of a cycle that's been going on for longer than any of us have any knowledge and we'll go on longer than any of us have any knowledge simultaneously. And uh, and all of this, this cycle of birth, death, life, the, the, the chant OM, which is three sounds, uh, ah, ooh, and mm, which two are our are, are Hindi siblings, is the ah is the is the first sound of creation. Ah, the ooh is the middle sound of creation. So, ah, ooh. And then mm is the final sound. So it incorporates the fullness of things and just the om. And, uh, but the ah piece, the beginning, we see that in all sorts of things. Um, Allah, aloha. Like, in fact, all of these languages, why do most alphabets start with an A, the ah, the spring sense of ah, like that ah coming out, that's that first piece. But every, that beginning of that ah always ends, something ended before this could happen and um i mean now as i'm thinking about it what needs to end so something new can happen now Mm. what is this new thing that we can get excited about where we can wait till the fall festivals for all of this produced to happen but what has to die first that's still precious to god precious to us Mm. but so that whatever's new can be you know, I'm struck by the first two verses of this, this psalm and just the intimacy that God is so intimate with creation in here. God, verse two, because he inclined his ear to me, just imagining the intimacy that it takes when you're listening to someone suffering and you incline your ear to them, how close you have to be. And that makes me wonder what this would look like if we read the eye of this passage, not as the eye of human, perhaps, but what if we read this from the perspective of creation, from the perspective of of the tree and God's intimacy with creation, leaning in and hearing the death, hearing the, the, the snares of death that creation is encompassed in right now with all of the crises, hearing the distress and the anguish of the trees that are calling out. And God's right there. God is listening. God is paying attentive, intimate attention to those cries. And still creation is bountiful. And uh, creation is lifting up its, its cup of salvation. You know, here we are in spring and creation is celebrating. Cherry blossoms are blooming here in Durham. And I know across the East Coast that the bounty continues And yes, there's been lots of death, 
but we know that creation comes from death as well. And that God is intimately involved in all of that in the process and listening attentively to the suffering. So the other thing that I have to say, like it's, it's sitting right here. Um, I was reading um, Christopher Carter's book, the spirit of soul food, race, faith, and food justice. And I interviewed him yesterday and, and his book, just to give a very short description of his book, you know, it's a, it's a call for us to, to eat soulfully. Um, and part of where he falls down on that is, is his explanation of black veganism and which, which he practices and the ethic he lives by. And the, there's one chapter of the book where he does theology and, and it's a theology around creation. And he invites us to think of, of the non-human world as part of our family as part of the the family of creation and and with that line of thinking it's really difficult to again just kind of where i'm sitting right now not imagine a lot of the prayers and and laments and um and even the thanksgiving that we read in the psalms being uttered by creation itself um, being offered, being offered by the non-human world, and so as you said that, I'm I'm really challenged by thinking of the the non-human world thinking, Garrett, as you said, of of the distress and and death that it must feel, and then and then Avery sort of mixing that in with the idea of of the intimacy of God with creation in these moments. God having that same kind of intimacy that, you know, we, we think of, of this relationship that we have with God oftentimes in, in, in these intimate spaces and inviting creation into that intimacy or, or, or maybe acknowledging that creation was already invited into that intimacy. So where is God inviting us to interact with creation here? Let this psalm speak as creation let this psalm be the fullness of it all 19 verses and where is god inviting us to interact perhaps initially is to be with god in creation and thereby to hear creation do this with god so that we are part of just those who are listening and so if we hear creation say i love the Lord because he's heard my voice and supplications. Then we sit with God and we begin to wonder what are the voice and supplications of creation? And we just have to sit and listen. Mm. And as we kind of go through then and we begin to hear now, if this is a song, a Psalm from someone who was ill, who's been delivered. And now we've taken this to be creation, which is ill. And will it be delivered? Now we begin to ponder as we hear some of these things, how we just get to hear it. And we don't get to figure out where we are in the midst of the whole thing, other than just hearing from creation, hearing from the tree, hearing from the ocean, 
hearing from the, the creatures on the mountains and uh, the pieces of things, hearing from birds that are disappearing from the United States and probably the rest of the world, hearing from creatures that are dying out all over the place, hearing these voices and these supplications and thereby sitting with God to be a part of it. And when they begin to become getting to the questions then of, you know, this delivered from death and eyes from tears and feet from stumbling, will creation be able to say, as in verse nine, I walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And now we just get to hear that plea. And in hearing that plea, I think that will begin to maybe then inspire more of a sense. But first, I think, where is God inviting us to interact? Sometimes we just, I don't know, uh, with chaplaincy or CPE programs, like if anyone else heard this, but my my first day when I was like, like okay, we're going to go visit some patients. And I was like, whoa, wait a second. I don't have any idea what I'm doing. Um, someone said, show up and shut up. And, and, and maybe this psalm taken the way that we've kind of, uh, has, has bubbled up or the spirits moving us to see is an invitation to show up and shut up and listen to creation and ponder if the part the lectionary wants to give us is something that, uh, creation will be able to sing. And as we speak of lifting up our own cups of salvation, whether in Passover or Monday, Thursday, um, will creation at this moment in time, because of whatever we are about to do as a part of it while listening to it, be able to say with us, I lift up my own cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Yeah, just, just you know, one, I think one small thing that um, I'm compelled by here, which I touched on earlier, is just the act of recreation that we see in this passage of partnering with the bounty and beneficence of creation to create something else that is beautiful and compelling and that we give back to God. And often the way we give back to God is we give it to our community. (laughs) So the cup of salvation, you know, uh, that's, I'm imagining wine um, or uh, the Thanksgiving sacrifice, you know, a lamb that has been tended and cared for that is sacrificed. And I think, you know, that means in a most basic sense gardening, Gardening and sharing the bounty with neighbors and whether that's literally gardening or that's some other form of, you know, cultivating creation where you are and making that available and open to the people who you love and who are around you. I think that's one of the invitations here. So where is there a call to action for the church in this passage? Yeah, the action. It's one thing to listen, but this is where we get to go to the end and have um again the beauty of both passover and monday thursday are they aren't the end of either story and either story is not really one of gratitude because they still need to escape this whole kind of thing it's just one piece and it's a terrible piece and monday thursday is is effectively terrible and so if like we're, we're not getting out we're we're not toward easter we're not toward freedom like it's the first step and if that first step is just listening to that peace. How do we get to that kind of peace where at the end we're talking about offering a Thanksgiving sacrifice, calling him the Lord, I'll pay my vows. What are our vows? What what are we in this mist now? And not just, and this is where it becomes ours again. And because we don't get to actually ever separate ourselves from creation, we can both listen and recognize we're part of. In the presence of all his people, 
what is our hope? What's our vision? What's our own sense of thing? And I think, again, there's some simple pieces of this. I mean, like, yeah, how many churches still can do a community garden just to become like, and you begin to share some of those pieces. But too, like, what is the idealized version where you're almost offering some people like, you know, that vision that who knows if we can reach, but we need a first step. So you give people the vision and you give people the first step. But this idea of in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. That's the idealized. That's the eschaton, if you will. But the courts of the house of the Lord, what are those places? Are they Jerusalem? Like this person has been said, uh, you know, maybe 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago. Or can we now recognize that the courts of the house of the Lord are the fullness of this plan and the fullness of our areas? and the fullness of whatever, but in the midst of these kind of endless Jerusalems that are God's Mount Zions, how can we get to the place where now everything is saying, yeah, praise the Lord. And there is been healing and there has been that. And then, so the call to action in the midst of hearing creation, becoming part of creation and recognizing the fullness of this kind of cycle becomes the pieces of giving concrete ways that we begin to realize this, like a realized eschatology for creation that we get to see in the psalm. And, and that's the small pieces. So as we listen, how do we not just listen in a way to say, oh, that was nice, but our listening begins to, in fact, heal so that the psalm can be made valid for the creation that is voicing it and not just the psalm that ends on verse 11 with everyone is a liar, but a psalm that gets to end on verse 19 with praise the Lord. And there's so many pieces that we can do that. And I mean, the, the two of you are already wonderful examples for any one of us like myself, who's just here in the church pondering how to do this. I mean, with, with the organization that you get to work for Avery or, you know, Derek, the stuff that you're doing with churches now, sitting down, how do you begin community gardens and these kinds of pieces? Um, like, and it, and it doesn't have to be something that is huge because if we begin to look at the normity of the problem, it's so easy to say, I have no idea how to do this. It's like the snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. How can we give some kind of sense of moving in at least in a direction where maybe that's still true, but the sense of praise the Lord is still there. And there are numerous pieces that churches can begin to do that. And I'm not going to try to offer one of them because I already know I'm sitting with two people who would do a far better job of offering churches the ability of doing that. And what a gift then you two are to the church to help move us in a direction where maybe, maybe, maybe one day we can be sitting with the fullness of creation and having this peace in the courts of the house of the Lord that are the fullness of the earth and say, praise the Lord. In this passage, but in all of the passages with Maundy Thursday, and really the point of Maundy Thursday is intimacy and communion. Oh. That it is in, in almost a quotidian way. You know, here we have inclining an ear to a loved one who is suffering. And the text we'll jump into with, of course, the Passover meal. It's, it's sharing a meal. What I'm struck by is that right before the explosion of Good Friday and Holy Saturday and Easter, 
you know, these passages are about being with community, recognizing the gifts and the bounty that is creation and just drawing into closer intimacy. Of course, you know, the, the feet washing, the other one, like just these intimate acts of being in close connection with each other and with our community. And I think the call to action here is again, who is our community? Our community is not just our human community. Our community is all of creation. It's the land around us is the creatures, um, the plants, the animals, and of course the humans being an integral part of that. And so draw in closer, you know, listen, I think key number one call to action is just listen, find a place to sit down with creation and listen and pay attention. And then I know this isn't this text, but it's Monday, Thursday, wash their feet, you know, wash the feet of creation, engage in small, simple acts of restoration. One of the connective tissue pieces here is that what we see is God in the place of service for the messy parts of humanity. And if there is a call of action to the church, if we are to be imitators of Christ, it is to be in care and compassion for the messy parts of humanity. And what does it mean for us as the hands and feet of Christ to, to incline our ears to those who are entrapped in the snares of death? What does it mean for us to protect the simple? What does it mean for us to be with those um, whose uh, eyes are filled with tears and whose feet are stumbling? I think there's a call to action there for the church that 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 there is that there is an imitation of Christ being called for even in this passage in Psalm to say part of what it means for us as a community of faith is to be in those spaces where um, where the messiness of humanity um, is is on display. Corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Avery, there's there's a lot there, um, a lot that's familiar, um, and so I'm 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 kind of interested in hearing what your take on where creation is in this story, in this passage, this really well known, often heard passage. Talking about creation, you know, this is this is it. Like I don't know, this is I think the the Lord's Supper is the most tactile, profound cosmic, incredible connection that we have in our faith to all of creation. And what is it mediated by? By the bread, by the cup. And I just want us to pause for a second and reflect that 
where is creation in this passage? It's in the food. What kind of food is this? This is just bread. It's just wine. It's the meal that they might share every day. It is, it is, it is in the quotidian that this, the, what is going to be the restoration and the resurrection of all, if we're, you know, spoiler alert for Easter, is found in this simple meal of bread and blood, sorry, of bread and wine. <laughs> and I just think just pausing for a moment and reflecting on that is, is what I want us to do here. The second piece that is so profound here is just thinking about this as, as Passover meal, as the Passover supper. And that creation is also here in the liberation of the oppressed, that the memory of the liberation of the Israelites is maintained through this ritual that is sharing a meal that is engaging in practical acts of taking creation into our bodies and, you know, creation becoming us and us becoming, you know, it's, it's all mixed up in there that what, what is being remembered here is the liberation of God's people out of oppression. Amen. Like first and foremost, just the same. You see it in simple things, bread, wheat, wine, grapes, that piece of things that is bounty from creation. I'm still stuck on the song. And, and simultaneously uh, is the work of humanity to help create the bread and the wine and that piece. But I, I was arrested a little bit just by the, the for, for I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you. Um, it was that sense of like, here's communion as a gift that was given to me and now I'm giving it to you. And how much of like life is this gift that has been given to us and how are we going to give it to others? So you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, but he's come over and over and over again in the midst of just the sharing of this meal and the, and the, and the sharing of this moment and the sharing of these things. And so whatever I received, now I hand on to you. And I, I love that. Um, I, I've never looked at it that way uh, until this reading, you know, that kind of beauty of, again, I, I almost where's creation? How much has been handed to me? And how am I going to hand it back? And now I can still look at it in the high holy day kind of piece. And, and we celebrate communion often. And it's, it becomes so kind of rote and normal that it now becomes an invitation again to, to see it as holy in the connectedness of all things. But uh, just as a simple kind of thing that I've received and now I get to hand on. And you know, if you want to explode that too with you know God and creation, again, all that we have here is a gift that we've received. And how are we going to hand it on? And if God's called gift this life, again, how do I get to hand on the gift? How do I get to be the recipient of the joy of living and the beauty of the abundance that's all around and now give it on. And for Paul in this moment, it was this, this gift of a feeling of salvation that he knew that was a salvation of his own tradition. That was, yeah, the salvation of an oppression. And, and 
you know, in that very stereotypical Christian way, it's kind of a salvation from an oppression to just sin. And, and maybe we don't play with that notion enough Christians anymore. We don't like the notion of sin, but maybe if we call exactly what's going on to some of the ways that we're dealing with the reception of this gift of abundance that we've been given, it's straight up sin. And if this is a cup that's supposed to free us from sin, now God's interacting in this joyous feast of abundance where we're all now together and saying, pass this on to others. And, uh, and so we become part of the passing on, part of the gifts for those who will receive it. This is a group of Jews sitting down for the Passover. Where's the lamb? And Christopher Carter, Dr. Carter kind of comes down to the place that maybe there was no lamb there. And part of that is, is is part of that is is mixed in with his argument for for veganism. But there's also a piece for me that wonders in this time and space: was it possible that there were Jews for whom the expense of a lamb was not possible, and so Passover was simply reduced to the bread and the wine? because these were the most basic agricultural products. Mm. What does it mean for us that this is the most elemental representation of creation, the most basic representation of, of creation that we can take into ourselves is the bread and the wine. What Jesus receives is, is that of creation that would be most accessible the that of creation which would be most accessible to to the least to the poorest to the most marginalized and that creation can still show up in all of its glory is i i mean say what you want bread's still pretty magnificent and wine's still pretty great <laughs> and all of the glory of creation is still in these things that are most accessible to the most common, the most lowly. I, I, if I may, um, I mean, because in context, Paul is pissed at the Corinthians for basically separating themselves between the haves and the have-nots having sure. meals before they do communion. And so the, the joy of, of that is, um, you know, he starts chapter 11 with, you know, be imitators, therefore, of Christ, right? Or of me, as I am of Christ. <laughs> Okay, so maybe we have some difficulties <laughs> with that idea. But um, like he's a he's unhappy that they are participating in something where there are people who don't have enough to kind of go through that. So I think what you were saying too, just playing off that notion, if there's no lamb, because you know it become a simple meal, and now how quickly we turn it into a complex meal all over again. And still separate ourselves between the haves and the have-nots. Where for Paul, and you know, like whoever eats, therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. How are we answerable for the body and blood of the Lord? Because we still have separated ourselves from those who are in need and participate of this meal in ways that are unjust. Uh, where is God interacting with creation? I think one of the biggest shames in church history is the spiritualization of the Eucharist. The idea that in taking the Eucharist, we are transported into some kind of 
heavenly realm and, you know, into a spiritual place where we commune with Christ and with God. And then, you know, we come back down into this lowly fleshly life. That's literally the opposite of what's going on here that (laughs) God is in creation that, you know, when we take the Eucharist, the acts of the, the, the bread and the wine don't, don't force our eyes upward to look to the heavens. You know, there's one instance where food falls from the heavens, you know, in the Bible, but (laughs) every other instance it's coming from the ground. (laughs) You know, I think what, what, where God is, is God is in the soil. God is in the source of life that becomes the bread and the wine. And that is the food. I would take that just a step further and say, what comes from the ground is grain Mm. We and human hands make it bread. What comes from the ground is grapes and human hands make it wine. I think God is there mm. in that interaction with humanity and creation, turning grain to bread, mm. grapes to wine. I would add God shows up and makes it sacramental. So it's not just the earth doing the peace or the human doing the peace, but now it becomes the Trinity of sorts where these very basic things that become sustenance now become nourished and, and it turns the natural order into a sacrament. <laughs> I mean, that's the joy of sacraments. They're the most basic of things. Wheat made with hands and the bread, grapes made with hands and the wine, water that's abundant, and it all becomes holy. It's holy and it's human and it's creation and it's simple. And that's where God is on the night before the most cataclysmic three days cosmically that has ever happened in the history of the universe. You know, that this is the precursor to Good Friday and to Easter is not a huge meal, you know, but it is in the simplicity. It is with the poor like you're saying, Derek, in solidarity with, with the oppressed. I just find that compelling. I really like, to the context where it was already the separation of the rich and the poor going on in, like, first-generation churches. Like, it didn't take long for people were like, why is a church not the way it should be? I'm like, well, have you read Paul's letters? It's been for a long time. And it's nice to know, again, the beauty of the sacramental, the simplicity. Um, but the struggle that we've always had and everybody always must have. And this this passage shows up as a struggle that for Paul is a struggle of the recognition of the siblinghood of those who are participating and the justice issues of those who are poor. And, and it's this beautiful, simple, and simultaneously, I would love if utilizing this incredibly familiar thing to hear some kind of thing that also recognizes that while like let's take some of the mystery out of communion and let's give it back mystery that's truly mystery where we're not being transported to the heavenly realms in some kind of ancient ways but say we have no idea what's going on here but that's what makes it holy and how much of the basic stuff gets to be holy because we have no idea what's going on Mm -hmm. I remember one time there was a woman who was 
who was the daughter of a Presbyterian pastor in one of my churches, and her son is 12, 13. He'd always come up and he'd do the thing like he was in a Catholic church and not Catholic. And and I asked her one time, well, why why doesn't Trevor get to have communion? And she says, well, he's not been, he's not gone through, uh, you know, uh, what the heck, why am I blanking? Com- confirmation. Confirmation. Now you can tell how good of a Presbyterian I am. <laughs> Um, he hasn't gone through confirmation. I'm like, well, you know, in our denomination, you just need to be baptized. What does it matter? Well, he doesn't understand communion. And so I said to her, well, please explain to me communion. And the next <laughs> month, Trevor got communion. That was the end of the conversation. <laughs> and, um, and, and I don't understand it. I just know that it's incredibly simple, incredibly complex, that the most basic elements of our nutritional needs to bread is like, the, like, that's the thing that people have had for generations. If you just had some bread and wine, which is now more of a treat, but still something that's incredibly calm, it all becomes holy and it all brings us together. And it's a table where we're all supposed to be brought together and where in that very poly way all are supposed to be made one we're being fed from the christ in this sheer joy of here's my blood which is you're not allowed to have blood in the old testament blood is the life force you can't consume it that's for god alone and now here is christ saying have my blood and what's my blood something as basic as wine and here's the inviting us to drink the life force of creation and calling it the life force of divinity and thereby turning creation is, I don't know. I don't know how else to say it other than repeat myself, but all I know is I don't understand it and it's glorious and mysterious and it's stunning. Where's God inviting us to interact with creation, Avery? One of the most amazing things to me about just the act of eating is that it constantly reminds me that I am not this blob that bounces around in the world and is separate from everything else (laughs) and, you know, takes in things by osmosis that are still separate from me, you know, that um, it totally dispossesses us of the idea of individualism, that we can do anything on our own. And of course, science has affirmed this, constantly affirming this and telling us how much we are not ourselves, that we are literally, we contain multitudes, that we are full of all kinds of other beings that constitute who we are. And I, you know, there's this image that uh, an author named Tim Ingold has where he suggests that instead of seeing creatures, seeing creation as these blobs that are moving around in the world, these containers that are holding who we are, that really what we are is we're lines. We're lines who are intersecting with other lines and we're getting tangled up with them and we're wrapping around them. And together, all of these lines, and that's our, our, our friends, these are human friends, these are trees, this is the bread we're eating, all of these lines create a meshwork that is the world and that is holding up all of us together. And I think that's what's happening here in the Eucharist is reminding us that we are lines. We are in a meshwork. We are not blobs that are separate from everything else, but we are completely and intrinsically interdependent and held up by the bounty of God's creation by the gift of it 
and by by each other, by by the love of our community. While Avery was trying to dissuade us from, I still like the idea of now I get to eat with the rest of the people eating this. I, I get to be with the Christ. That first night it happened, I get to be with Paul and Corinth. I get to be with you two on the eastern side of the country. I get to be with people whose names and faces I will never know on other sides as we all eat this common meal together where these very common things have become sacramental. And God just tells me, you don't get to be yourself. And it's not even just the meal. It's the symbolism of the meal. Or if you want to be Catholic or Lutheran or whatever else, I don't care. Whatever you think is going on, it's basic, normal stuff mixed with God saying, now it's me too. And you get to do it together. On top of the things that you both have said, I see in this a call for what some would call mindful eating. Maybe because that has gotten a secular, almost Buddhist interpretation, which I'm not deeply opposed to. But maybe a, maybe another way of putting it is a, a discerning eating, a, a open-hearted eating that the the worst thing that has happened to our food system in my mind is with all of the actual physical things that have happened that have been atrocious but one of the worst things that have happened to our food system in my mind is the reduction is the idea of reducing food to fuel because if we reduce food to fuel then eating has this completely utilitarian function what is happening at the table is not the utilitarian uh, act of eating food for fuel. It is the act of eating as relationship, relationship around the table, relationship with God, relationship with creation. And anytime we divorce food from those relationships, we are denying the bounty that has been given us um, to go back to the Psalm. So I would just add that the invitation here is to an open hearted eating. If, we, if we're open hearted in our eating, we'll think about what we eat. We'll think about who we're eating with. We'll think about all those times that we eat alone. We'll think about all those times that we eat on the go in the car. And we'll ask ourselves, is this what eating is for? Is it just fuel for our bodies? And I would go as far as to say, and and again, this kind of feeds into a lot of what Wilson was saying um, in our other conversation. But I would I would say that the idea of food as fuel feeds into empire because it keeps the machines going that do the work, that make the products that can be sold, that make the weapons that can be used to fight. Food as fuel is not what's happening at the table. And... I would say communion is the space where the idea of food as fuel is rejected. And the idea of food as machine for the empire is rejected. You know, I, I, I want to share uh, a phrase from Norman Wurzba that has been very helpful for me in thinking about that. And that is Eucharistic eating. Mm. 
which I think is exactly why you're getting at Garrett. And and leave to Norman words, but I have the better phrase for it. That <laughs> you know, just this idea that what we do at the Eucharist is not limited to the Eucharist. That when we are sharing meals with each other, where God is there, this the sacred beauty of the food that is both God's bounty and the work of our hands is there. And so, what might it look like for us to treat any meal? like the Eucharist and recognize it as holy and use it as an opportunity to build community with each other and with the rest of creation. Where is there a call to action for the church? The call to action piece might just be the, the mindfulness right now, as, as you said it, or Eucharistic uh, eating, or as I was just trying to wax poetic on whatever in terms of the sacredness of things, or maybe you can couple it with this idea of, you know, uh, utilitarian eating is, is fuel for empire and, and, and play with the whole notion of Paul ripping all of that apart anyway because he, he sees the elements of that and doesn't want people to eat it the wrong way so what's it mean to eat it the right way and then just kind of go into that kind of piece to sit there is um, I don't think we can have any action that will move us in a just and clear direction until we are eating ourselves with a sense of wonder. Mm. I remember this four-year-old girl or something when I was in Georgia and we were at some kind of party and she's eating this watermelon and she suddenly looks up at her father and says, Daddy, it tastes like sunshine. And I just was like, she's wiser than I've ever been. What would it be like if I slowed down when I was eating communion and I could taste the sunshine and the juice? <laughs> I could taste the hands that made the bread. I could taste the dirt in which the wheat was grown. What would it be like if my relationship with the meal at the table was communion in terms of the recognition of everyone who's around me and connecting them, but being connected to the food, not just as it was grown or as it's being presented with me, but in the fullness of its story. Mm. And if that connects me to the fullness of the food's story, it connects me to the fullness of everybody's story. And thereby, anything I might do to try to change things comes from an understanding of the fullness of the, each bite I take to the, my communion with all things. And maybe thereby, I can actually do something that's just because I can't help but see it otherwise. But my wife actually um, uh, surprised me a, a couple of weeks ago because she had to pray for, uh, we were at her cousin's wedding and, you know, being that she was the pastor there, she was tasked to pray for one of the meals at the reception or something. She she asked me about how I pray at meals. And I'm like, first off, I'm like, oh, you you actually listen to me? You know, one of the things that I say when I, you know, when I'm praying at meals is, is uh, you know, to bless all of those who made the meal, who made the elements of this meal made it possible for the elements of this meal to get to our table. 
and I think that what I hear, what what part of what communion does for me, and, and particularly this line of thinking for of communion, is thinking of all of the hands that food items in our food system have to go through to get food to us. And so you're thinking about the farm workers who are working in backbreaking situations. You're thinking about the, the, the pickers who are working in hot sun with ridiculous quotas that they're being uh, paid to fulfill and not paid very well to fulfill. You're thinking about the packers and the truckers who are often uh, tasked with taking food thousands of miles from its places of origin. And, as, and, and then you're talking about the grocery store workers who oftentimes, I, I am I'm oftentimes surprised by looking into the faces of, of grocery store workers and knowing that I'm seeing faces of people who have children and maybe grandchildren and going, is it possible that you're making the wage that you need at this grocery store to do the things you need to do for your family? So all the hands that our food goes through to get to our tables. And I think that there's a, there's a call in communion for the church to be in solidarity with all of those hands with all of those, um, with the work, with the farm workers, with the pickers, with the drivers, with the grocery store workers, with the, with the fast food workers, with the, you know, um, cause that was the, the grocery store was the idealized version, but with the, with the fast food workers, with the, with the food truck workers, with the, all the different hands, there, there's a, there's a call for the church to be in solidarity. And again, as is highlighted in John's passage for Monday, Thursday, for us to be in compassionate service um, and care for them. Communion is a call to be in solidarity with them, to be seeking justice for them, to be seeking fair, equitable wages for them, to be seeking good living and working conditions for them, and that stretch for me as as a meat eater to also be thinking about the fact that like i should also be thinking about that for my non-human community that as i as i purchase meat i am now more thoughtful about you know my friend uh karen mann who is a farmer in virginia talks about the fact that she raises pigs and talks about the fact that her pigs have one bad day. For me as someone who will continue to eat meat, my hope and prayer as a consumer and purchaser of meat is that the animals that I eat had one bad day. That's what communion draws me to. And that, that I think is, is an action to be the most compassionate eater I possibly can be. I have this endless sense of uh, you know paying attention to the justice issue that's going on in the Corinthian passage that connects it with this sense of compassion that Jesus is doing in the John passage. Mm-hmm. 
that connects it with the sense, even in the Exodus passage, of the movement of kind of people who are stuck in slavery, which connects it to this idea of the Psalm passage of like, how do we get out from the state of sickness to a state of health? I don't remember where I read years ago something about nuns who prayed in that very similar way of, you know, thanking God for the hands of the people, but also for the people who made the lunches for the people who were picking the food and the and, and every and the people who drove and the people who birthed them. And and I and I remember I changed my own kind of prayer time when you start praying for like these kind of pieces. And the first time I tried to pray that way was shortly after I read it. And I wish I, I kind of don't remember. And it was at a gathering of clergy. And and it was in a long prayer because I was trying to consider everybody um, who might have had their hands touch this kind of piece. And then also for the abundance of the, the plants, the animals, you know, and uh, when then that group met the next time, um, they someone asked, well, who's going to pray? And somebody said, anyone but Garrett, I want to eat lunch, not dinner. And, um, and, <laughs> and I was like, that's unfortunate. Um, but I, I, I get it. I, because we don't even allow our prayers to be mindful That's right. if we're going to pray at all. So what if we change the great prayer of Thanksgiving, which nobody pays any attention to anyway, really? I mean, I'm sorry if you're someone who pays attention to that and you were offended by that statement. <laughs> but what if we had a great prayer of Thanksgiving where we are giving great thanks for literally the people who grew it, the people who picked it, the people who brought it to market, people who packaged it up for us, the people who did, the people who had the foresight or the, the people who came up with the recipes for whatever bread we're using, if it was somebody in the congregation, the people who picked the grapes, the people who, and, and our great prayer of Thanksgiving becomes one where that solidarity by the end of the prayer recognizes this just isn't a meal that Christ is presiding on. This is a meal that there is a large number of people who are providing us. And now we kind of have that. I, I might have to change up how I do liturgy because of what you said and already what I was thinking there. I like that. Mm. But it does. Eating is solidarity with all who brought us there. Even if like, yeah, we're going to eat for some utilitarian purpose because we do in fact need energy, but you're right. If that is the reason, then we have failed to recognize the fullness of God's message to us. The reason it's done at a table, the reason it's done, remember me. Like, stop trying to just think about yourselves or what you're doing next. Remember me and thereby remember all the others who were there as well. Remember the whole narrative. Remember, uh, remember everything. What if it's instead of just like, oh, now we're trying to remember. Oh, yeah, we remember Christ. And thanks, God, for all these things that you've done. What if we just turn it into remember? Mm. Remember. Mm. Stop just sitting there. Like, I mean, I ate um, breakfast this morning standing up reading like at my desk like there's I, I couldn't have paid less attention to what I was eating <laughs> other than I was like this is delicious and now I, I don't feel guilt for that but now I feel like I've lost the sense of having wonder if wonder can be at every kind of moment if wonder can be in every kind of bite then of course I will stand in solidarity with those who are not getting what they need because they have only increased the sense of wonder that is all things. And I was able to taste the wonder of their 
labor, the wonder of their sweat, the wonder of their determination to try to make a life for their family that they're not getting, that they need, the wonder of how things have worked, and also the wonder of how things shouldn't work. When I have things packaged in plastic, what a wonder that it's still done that way and I'm now throwing it away. Like, yeah, I mean, Paul's forcing the people to pay attention to communion and they're not. And I'm still not. And I do things rote and ritualistically. Um, I don't do great prayer anymore because I'm like, oh, it takes so long. But I can't wait to I can't wait to try to write one right now that is going to be like, <laughs> God, I give you thanks for the people who came up with the recipe for this and the people who like and then going through these things. And God, I give you thanks that one day they might receive fairly like fair wages for the labor they're doing. And, and as I consume this, give me a heart that is your heart, a justice that is your justice. As I consume this, and, it's, and I have a sense that somehow in consuming it, I get to become more like you. I or use a piece like an imitator of you allow it so I can become an imitator of you and or we can become an imitator and even oh yeah no that's glorious I'm sorry yes it's glorious (laughs) it it needs to be that way yeah be writing the great prayer of thanksgiving Thank you for listening. We'll have one more pilot episode with the Easter passages later this week, and we're hopeful to launch this as an ongoing podcast this fall. If you'd like to be involved in the show, or if you have any feedback on the pilot episodes, you can reach me at foodandfaithpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we'll talk again soon.